This is The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth. Good morning and welcome to The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth, your one-stop healthy home center. I'm Kevin Northup. The Weekender for Saturday, November 26th, 2022. Coming up this hour, dumping day is fast approaching. What's the outlook for the lobster fishing season? Jacob Postaway chats with Dan Fleck of the Brazil Rock 3334 Lobster Association and Dwayne Surratt with DFO. Curling is coming back to Yarmouth in a big way. The Canadian Senior Championships begin next weekend at Mariner Centre. We get all the details on what to expect in an interview with local organizers. And we talk to local storyteller Laurent Dantremont about his latest book. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Jacob Postlewaite. Dumping day is almost here. Port reps are meeting this weekend with Environment Canada and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans to determine the best day to head out on the water. In anticipation of dumping day, we spoke with Dan Fleck of the Brazil Rock 3334 Lobster Association and DFO's Area Chief of Resource Management for Southwest Nova, Dwayne Surratt. First up is Dan Fleck. Thanks for joining me today, Dan. You're welcome, Jacob. So how are you feeling heading into this season? Well, we're, we're hoping for, uh, for calm seas and a good price and a readily available bait but, uh, and, and some, some fine weather, but uh, it's a big question mark this year. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's a lot that's going to be going on, and we'll get into some of that. But first, I wanted to ask you, uh, how did last season go? Last season was a rough season as far as the weather, you know, the month of December and into January. It seemed like the wind started blowing and it never settled down. The captains and crews, you know, they faced and they rode out some rough weather and some rough storms. And, you know, they did the best they could, but it was it was definitely a, a rough season weather-wise. Um, as we progressed into the season, we did see a good demand for our lobsters and, uh, we saw a record high price of around $17 into March. So uh, we ended on a, on a high note for the season. Yeah, for sure. I remember we chatted about some of those prices uh, back in the day. But yeah, it was, a, it was a late start to the season. I remember the, the weather kind of just kept, kept hitting us. And because there was a, uh, I remember DFO brought in a, a thing where you could start two days early. But I remember it just kept, it, the weather just kept on us. And we were, we were waiting for that time. So uh uh, looking ahead now to this season, how is how is the weather shaping up? You know, so far, very unpredictable. Uh, it seems like there's you know we use many different forecasts. A lot of captains have their favorite forecasts and media sites that they'd like to use, and the Environment Canada site. But uh, it's not looking real favorable. You know, for uh, for an early start, that's for sure. Um, the weather protocol that DFO has was established you know, twenty plus years ago with with the intent to select the safest day to set their traps. And it, it's worked well, which basically calls for if the winds are greater than 26 knots, uh, that prompts DFO to keep the season closed. Other than that, all decisions regarding an opening is, uh, is based upon the report representatives. Uh, voting is based on the um, each port's license holder's view, what they want. Uh, I guess to explain an example would be, if the winds are not in excess of 26 knots, the port representatives can vote to not open the season. This may come into play a day or two prior to the scheduled opening. That is, say, if dumping day is not a good day, the port reps can vote to open it a day or two early, or they can vote to keep it closed. 
it, it's up to the port reps and uh, and the uh, captains that they represent. Well, I'm sure you know it's all about just picking the safest time, you know, for people to head out. Absolutely, you know, we, we've all heard, you know, you've heard it before. You know, these boats are heavily laden with, you know, traps and ropes and anchors and bait and fuel and. You know, the vessels handle differently in, in, in no, under those conditions. And safety is the primary, it's, it's the main thing. It's what we want. We want everyone to get out there and get their traps set and everyone get back safe and sound. For sure, absolutely. So it might be uh, a little early to tell, but uh, what are your expectations heading into this season? Uh, I'm anticipating a good price and great catches. But, uh, you know, based on what we're seeing in other areas, you know, 36 and 38, what, what, what they're getting for prices, I believe today it's uh, 675 a pound. But, you know, we're, we're still five days out from when the scheduled opening is. So uh, the demand for live, good quality southwest Nova Scotia lobsters is strong. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we've talked before, yeah, there is a pretty high demand and it's always great quality lobster. And, of course, those prices fluctuate throughout the season. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it's difficult to tell, but you know, with we, you know, with the, with the world economy and the Asian market, and we're always trying to explore new, new venues where we can uh, market our lobsters, be it into Europe, Norway, and the Asian market, if we can increase that as well. For sure. Uh, so let's chat a little bit about the bait situation. You know, we saw some crucial bait fisheries shut down last year and, and this year, you know, and that kind of put, put a little bit of question on on where the bait source of bait was going to come from but uh what is the situation here right now um well bait is in always always it's in great demand but due to recent revisions or decisions you know the the herring quota was cut this year by 36 percent um the closure complete closure of the mackerel fishery for prohibition and prohibitions on fish imported for russia have all contributed uh, to a need to explore alternative baits and alternative bait sources um we are skeptical i guess would be the nicest way i can say it of uh dfo's determination on the mackerel stock uh we we've seen and people are reporting large concentrations of schools of mackerel throughout the summer and fall they're seeing lots of it so we're, we're questioning dfo's uh science and how they've determined that stock some some additional work is required in that area for sure, and uh, well, we talked about you know the the word the what DFO has has done you know with those bait fisheries here in in Canada, uh, but how much is an impact is that that source of bait coming from Russia? What impact is that having? Well, if you take like some people, you know, they for for years people have caught, some people have caught their own bait. They've they had they did not need to buy commercially sourced bait. They could go out and acquire their own bait and freeze it and prepare it and have it for themselves for the season. This year, that's not the case for many people. So now to try and, and gather that bait or any uh, processed fish like racks or anything that were coming out of Russia, uh, that, that's not available now. So uh, people are scrambling and, and the situation will only become increasingly, increasingly dire or desperate as we move through the season to have suitable bait available. Yeah, and I'm sure it's also going to, you know, cre- increase that demand and that that want to find alternative forms of bait as well. Yeah, we, we're exploring some uh, different non-traditional baits, and we, we've done some tests throughout the summer months, and now we're going to try some in-season tests to see if this stuff will pan out as a suitable alternative. 
For sure. And, you know, coming back to the start of the season, uh, is there any information or reminders that you want fishers to be aware of, you know, heading out for on the water this season? Oh, the big one, you know, we wish everyone well. We wish them, you know, a safe, prosperous season. Everybody get out there, get those trap sets, fill them up, bring them home, get back out there and be as safe as you can. We want everybody back safe and sound on shore. For sure. Uh, did you have any safety tips or reminders you wanted to share for people? Well, PFDs are great. Uh, check all your equipment before you go. You know, your, your life rafts, your PFDs, your personal flotation device devices you know check those fire extinguishers and all of that safety equipment and make sure your crew is familiar with it and uh take a few extra moments to go through that and make sure everyone's aware of it and you know register your epurb or your emergency position indicating radio beacon make sure that's all charged up and registered and where should people be looking to find out more information on you know when the season's going to start you know any announcements anything like that where should fishers be looking to find out that information well they can contact their port representatives who uh who, who deal directly with dfo on their behalf um the brazil rock lobster association we do have a text messaging service that we uh we transmit that information as soon as we know it and as well we'd ask that uh people tune in to cjls and ckbw for the uh for the updates as soon as they become available Yes, yeah, so we will be doing as many updates as we can, and we'll be there as much as possible for dumping day for when that when that finally goes out. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to say uh, about the upcoming season, Dan? Uh, the first uh, preseason weather safety call with, amongst uh, DFO and the port representatives is Thursday morning, both for 33 and for 34. And that's when we'll start to have some information uh available on when the season is is uh will be commencing but uh like i said when we look at the forecast down the road there's it's we got lots of weather coming yeah so it's always good to keep an eye on that keep an eye on the forecast keep an eye on what you need to know dan i want to thank you so much for joining us today for chatting about the upcoming season and everything that's going to be happening thank you jacob and uh keep in touch we're always here thank you for the time thank you now we bring you DFO's Area Chief of Resource Management for Southwest Nova, Dwayne Surratt. I guess my first question would be, how is DFO preparing for the season? Well, Jacob, at this time of year, you know, we are uh, safety-minded. So, uh, you know, all of our assets, which is boats on the water and uh, from the Coast Guard, from the fishery officers, from GRCC, which is the Joint Rescue Coordination Center, has all their plans in place, and uh, we're getting ready for the dumping day, the first day of the season. How many people are are you? Do you have any idea of how many people are going to be heading out on the water uh, once the season starts? Sure, Jacob. There's approximately for 33 and 34, 1,500 vessels, and probably that would equate to around 4,100 uh, folks, captains and crew, that would be uh, directly participating in the fishery. Okay. Is there any information that you think fishers should know heading into the season? Uh, just for uh, for fishermen themselves to be prepared, you know, the, the safety factor is always a concern for us this time of year. And, you know, all the efforts that we make with all our partners, uh, you know, are all good. And we, uh, we try to pick the safest day. However, harvesters play the most important role 
control in their own safety. And they should, you know, avoid overloading their vessel, make sure all their safety equipment uh, is working on board, have PFDs on board, prepare their sail plans, and uh, and just, you know, play it safe out there. It is a, a lot of pressure on this fishery. So uh, harvesters, you know, need to be aware of what, what their vessel can, ha- can handle and, and to ensure that they're, uh, they're safe out there. And can you give us any idea of what the DFO presence will be out on the water? Uh, every year there is a, a plan that uh, the Joint Rescue Coordination Center uh, prepares, and they do have a list. I don't have that right in front of me, a list of their vessels and where they'll be, and even you know some aircraft and the standby times. That's all uh, sent out to industry representatives so that they are aware of uh, of where the uh, the assets, the vessels, and the air, aircraft are for the first, at least, you know, for the first day or two of the opening. That's great. Okay, Dwayne, is there anything else you think uh, we should know about uh, before we, about heading into dumping day? Just, you know, that uh, for everybody to, to uh, be safe and hopefully have a safe and prosperous season. That brings us to the end of our dumping day coverage here on Y95's The Weekender. Be sure to join us on dumping day as we broadcast live from the Cape Forshoe Lighthouse. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Kevin Northup. Well, curling is coming back to Yarmouth in a big way. We had the Mixed Curling Championship here a number of years ago, and now uh, Mariner Center being turned into a curling center once again for the Everest Canadian Senior Curling Championship. It's uh, coming up in just over a week's time, December 4th, to 10th at Mariner Center and a little bit at the Yarmouth Curling Club too. Uh, there's going to be a number of teams here, men's and women's divisions, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Joining me right now, we have uh, Nick Hilton and Neil McKenzie, a couple of organizers of uh, of this uh, major event that's come back. And uh, good morning to both of you. Thank you for being here. Thank good, you. Good morning. And uh, I'll start uh, just by asking out of the pandemic here we are coming back with a major event for Yarmouth we've had a couple already but this one uh sports fans curling fans are really going to love so what was the process and the starting point like to get this here well when we first started uh with Yasta anyway you know we we often are reaching out to events rights holders you know folks with hockey large hockey events or uh conferences or in this case curling and uh we started reaching out to them early in 20. 20, or late in 2021, actually, and uh, showing interest that we wanted to host this event. And uh, we were really pleased that uh, they saw some interest in Yarmouth and saw that we had a lot of uh, organizing power and a lot of volunteers and a lot of interest and really wanted it. And uh, it actually had been hosted in Nova Scotia before in Digby, so they had some metrics uh, to look at and knew that that it would work. And uh, we were just really pleased to be able to, to land this event for the community. Absolutely huge. And Nick, from the curling side of things, I mean, this is going to be high-level curlers here coming here. A lot of them, I think, over the age of 50. Uh, some of the best, really, in the country are going to be here for this. Yeah, it's a, it's a really exciting um, time. Uh, I think it's really important to mention that uh, Curl Canada was um, looking to come back here because of uh, the way we hosted the 2017 Mixed. Um, they were really excited. They were really impressed by the uh, team that they put together in 2017. Um, and we have uh, curlers joining us like Al Hackner and Sherry Anderson. Both have been to the Briar. Al Hackner has one of the top five curling shots of all time. So uh, um, we're really excited about that. And even just on the commentary or the um, 
some of the, the people supporting the Everest that are going to join us, Randy Furby, who's been to the Briar 10, like 10 or six times, sorry, and five-time world champion. So we're really excited to see um, who shows up in Yarmouth. Some big names uh, are going to be here uh, taking in this event, and uh, you always love to see that and uh, drawing people in, of course. Uh, tickets, uh, I'll talk about that. Uh, how have things been going as far as ticket packages go? They've been ramping up uh, steadily now, but it's still really important that if folks uh, want to make sure they get to uh, see one of the matches, that they make sure that they p- purchase tickets. Um, they can purchase those at the Mariner Center. They can go to the box office, or they can purchase them online. So uh, get your tickets while you can, and... Uh, and uh, get a great seat. We're kind of into the last week of hockey here at Mariner Center, and then early this week, the ice is going to be converted over. Uh, Nick, that process is really interesting, isn't it? Were you, were you part of that process back in 2017, and kind of what does it take to, to get that ice in to, to be perfect for, uh, for Mariner Center? Yeah, we have uh, three ice techs joining us from uh, across Nova Scotia that uh, they'll be here on the 29th. We're going to start uh, 9 o'clock in the evening that night by uh, leveling out the ice and, and flooding it again to um, uh, then the next morning start by uh, we paint the whole ice surface white and um, go from there and put in uh, curling rings and logos. And, you know, the hockey rink is just underneath, and, and in the end the Zamboni will... Um, remove the curling surface and we'll be right back to hockey in 10 days so um, it's a whirlwind experience but it's it's truly amazing to see I have to admit that the transformation of Mariner Center is one of the coolest things that uh, that you can experience it, it looked completely different back in 2017. It was unbelievable, and uh, looking forward to seeing that again. I know uh, Eastlink had done the previous tournament, and this year I believe it's going to be the whole thing's going to be streamed by MC Media, so people can still take part and watch this, right? Yes, and uh, Curling Canada will also be streaming this on their YouTube channels too. Mm-hmm. So, um, which is you know from a destination perspective, we're really pleased with because they have a really big reach, and uh, it's going to um, connect with a lot of people and. and Put our destination in fr- in front of a lot of people that we want to we want to see. You know, Nick raised a great point when he talked about how uh, Curling Canada wanted to come back. Um, that's really the benefit of hosting large events and often hosting events that maybe are just a little bit uh, beyond our reach uh, because it forces us to build capacity in the destination. So you know, we held the 55 games. We held the the first national media event after the pandemic in June. Now we're hosting a, a curling event again, um, a, a bit larger than what we had hosted before. But because we did such a great do- job and the, the community came out and volunteers and, and the uh, facilities were there and the expertise has been, has been growing, um, we slowly are able to build our capacity to host larger and larger events. So that's why it's always important to host an event and do a great job because it leads to something else down the road. And you mentioned the volunteer base is always so strong, and that's true with every event that that we host here. We have such a strong community buy-in. How important is that this time around, and is there still a chance for people to get involved if they want to? I think so. Uh, Nick, you can take that, I guess. Uh, Yeah, so uh, we're looking at about 100 to 120 volunteers. Um, uh, There's over 1,200 or 12,000 1,200 positions throughout the week that they have them scheduled in. Um, And we're, um, yeah, we're always up for help. You can contact uh, the curling club or myself um, to to be added to the schedule. Um, It's really... It's really going to be an experience uh, and, and positive to see from both sides, the volunteer just being in the seats. The, the tickets are truly affordable, so we're really excited to, 
to to have it here in Yarmouth. I was checking out the schedule uh, this morning and and just to see it's really a full day of action every day. Um, it starts up on Sunday, four o'clock in the afternoon on the on the fourth, and uh, the games continue right through until uh, the tenth, where you've got the semifinals in the morning and then the bronze and gold medal games. Uh, I think at three or three thirty in the afternoon on the Saturday. So um, all week long, you can check out this great curling five sheets at the Mariner Center and and Nick, there's there's some of the curling club as well that's going to be hosted. Yeah, we have uh, three sheets, you know, total of eight sheets. Uh, we're du- pardon me, double the amount of uh, participants as we were in 2017. So it's it's twice the tournament mm-hmm. that we hosted before. So um, uh, both men's and women's teams from both every province, every territory, um, and uh, Northern Ontario. So um, just it's go- it's going to be truly amazing. Lots of people um, in the town. They're going to bring families. Um, uh, we know that this is one of the tournaments that has the biggest draw when 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 coming from afar so we're 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 really excited and that was always exciting too in the mixed curling to see people from every single province and territory so that will be happening here we're welcoming the country and uh, probably people from outside the country uh to this as well and and neil how important is that from a tourism aspect uh the shoulder season right now uh, to have those hotel rooms booked, to have people spending money here, it's it's absolutely key. It's it's part of our strategy. You know, we 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 really started pushing to move our destination to more of a year-round location uh, about a couple of years ago, and developing content and and strategy, and and also a big part of that is is trying to leverage events within those shoulder seasons, as you mentioned. So it means a lot because it's going to mean hotels are full, and then there's all these secondary spending that's going to happen with all those people coming. Uh, curlers that are 50 and over definitely fit our demographic of the folks that are coming to, to Yarmouth and Acadian Shores, so that's really great. And we've got some cool things planned f- to push them, you know, uh, not just within the town, but they're going to be pushing pushed out to other areas within Yarmouth and Acadian Shores. You know, we're pushing them to experience the buoy tree in Pubnico or do the climb the light experience. We're actually going to run that for some of the curlers mm. specifically. So, um, you know, you may see some of these folks come, have a great experience curling, hopefully do really well in the tournament and then decide let's go there next year uh, for a vacation. So that's the name of the game for us. Man, it's been a big year for that, hasn't it? And with the Travel Media Association being here too, I'm starting to see those articles pop up now on the spinoff, like you were talking about, probably mm-hmm. for a couple of years to come, we'll see those articles. So um, just uh, puts Yarmouth's name out there even more, and it's uh, certainly great to see. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned, uh, all sorts of games, uh, all sorts of teams to to check out. I think we're 28 to 30 teams will be here uh, for the curling tournament. So, uh, yeah, get your tickets a big time. How can people go about getting their tickets and where can they find out uh, more info yeah i you can go on uh, the mariner center website or or visit the box office at mariner center um uh also at curlincanada.ca so uh yeah ten dollars i think they're under ten dollars a ticket they are under ten dollars a ticket very affordable um just it's going to be an all-around great event and I think it's something you truly have to experience, the transformation of Mariner Center. Um, it's it's not just national curling, it's world-class curling. 90% of the world's curlers live within Canada, and uh, we are truly the best um, uh, on the world stage. So um, the, some of the individuals that are going to be here um, have been to bigger and better and the best events in the world. So uh, uh, you're going to see some great shots and some great action, and it's uh, um, it's just what you see on TSN and, and on Sportsnet. This is that level of quality curling, so come out and give it a shot. 
It truly is, and I know, Nick, you've been involved in the curling community for a long time here, and uh, and you love to play as well. So uh, what does this mean for the growth of the game here locally? Uh, it, it's one of the best things that you can do visibility-wise. We're, we're um, as a club, uh, slowly growing out of the pandemic. Um, uh, we recently started up our junior event, uh, junior program, and uh, we've had a lot of people coming out of COVID looking to try something new. Um, uh, we have 30 kids this year where we had six a couple of years ago and nice. um, still looking to grow that as well. Um, uh, Membership-wise, people are excited to be out and about. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, the Armouth Crone Club, um, you know, it's located down in, in the, at the golf course. A lot of people don't know that, but uh, um, the whole community is welcome to give it a try. It's a, it's a truly social um, sport, and it keeps you active. Um, uh, we're one big, one big family down there, and all are welcome. Yeah, and uh, hopefully this will inspire more people to try it out. So it uh, works all the better for, for everything there. So, again, it's the Everest Canadian Senior Curling Championship, and it's coming to Mariner Centre December 4th to 10th and at the Yarmouth Curling Club. Neil McKenzie, Nick Hilton, thank you both, and we'll see you out there, and we're, everyone's going to be hurrying hard to Mariner Centre for this one. We know that. That's right, hurry hard down to Yarmouth. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Jacob Postelwaite. I'm joined today by local author and storyteller Laurent Dantremont, and he's here to chat about his newest book, The Man in the Wrinkled Suit. Thank you for joining me today, Laurent. Thank you very much, Jacob. I'm happy to be here. Oh, we're happy to have you. So for those who might not know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, there isn't a whole pile to say. I I wrote seven books altogether. When I wrote the first one, I, I said it would be the last one, and then I made another one and another one. And, and the joke now is that every book is my last book. So, But for many years, I had articles in the Vanguard and Indianapolis Valley papers and some in the Halifax papers and in the Atlantic Advocate. So uh, eventually, after all those papers stopped having freelancers and so on, I started putting my stories in in book form. So they're all short stories. They're all, oh, in my last book I have 60 stories and 168 pages. Wow. They're what? we would call human interest story if there's such a thing as that. Oh, interesting. So tell us about uh, the kind of stories that you like to tell. Yes, well, I I got the, the urge to tell stories from my grandfather. He was a great storyteller. He used to to come to our house as he lived across the road, uh, and, and I spent most of my time at his house, and he would. He was a sea captain in his younger days, and in, in later days he did some farming. But he would talk about the days when he was captain of schooners, like the what he called the Cupola and and the Clarkell Corkum and the the uh, Springwood, which was the fastest sailing ship he had ever seen. And he always said that Angus Walters never knew how lucky he was. That he never competed with, with the the Springwood on the racing, so uh, we'll never know. 
but but I tell the type of stories that I I try to to keep memories alive. I I have stories about the uh, the shopmobile in there, and I have a story about my father who had an unusual career as agricultural representative in in Yarmouth County and Shelburne County, which which are definitely fishing counties, but he earned his living in, in the field of agriculture. And uh, I have a story about Silver Donald Cameron who died two years ago, I knew him quite well. I, I have stories about the days when I worked with the credit union, uh, with conventions and places that the people I met early pioneers of the credit union movement. I have stories about that. But I have lots of Pumnico stories and people who ordinarily would not have been in books. They they certainly are the main players in in my book. For sure. That's actually, you know, you mentioned your grandfather was a schooner captain. My great grandfather was the captain of a, of a schooner. He wasn't he wasn't based in this area. He was based out of Bedeck. Oh, I in, see. Up in Cape Breton. Uh, but that's really interesting, you know, that you like to not just tell your own stories, but to share other people's stories and, and share stories about about the area. Yes. Well, most of my stories are about other people. I, I don't write a whole pile about myself, but I... I, I mentioned people I work with in, when I started working in the early 1960s. I, I, I talk about going to the Yarmouth Vocational School in, in the days when Dr. Burridge, you know, the school is now called the Burridge Campus. Well, yes. Dr. Burridge was one of our teachers when I was a student there a hundred years ago. <laughs> and he had he was old, not as old as I am now, but he was... He was old back then, and he would—he had a weak stomach, and he would eat crackers. He would ha- have these cracker breaks every every morning, and he he would come back to the class still eating crackers. And he started talking, and what I remember about him was the crackers flying everywhere, you know, <laughs> like like an old planer. Doctor Bridge had done many many things, but it was. His crackers that I remember him for. So you must be, you know, really passionate about keeping that history alive, you know, keeping those stories alive. I have a story about old cars from the letter A to Z. The letter Z, there was a car called Zus, but it rhymed too much with the letter Dus, and that's why it never sold. And, And I have... Yes, I, I speak about the early cars in my village when I grew up. I grew up in a different time. Uh, people were, my grandfather was still farming. His fishing days were behind him when I came on the scene. And uh, every summer we made hay. He had five or six pigs that he would slaughter in, in the fall and they would cut the meat on top of an old lobster crate. There was no no rules or regulation. I don't remember anybody ever being sick over eating that meat. And the same with the milk, which he sold from his cow. The milk came straight from a cow. It didn't come from a truck. So every summer we, we made hay. We planted crops. We 
and in the fall of course we we harvested them so it was a total different world and and we did our carpenter work to fix things around the house and yeah it was and that's what I, I write about a time that no longer exists but I I have modern stories too I have a good story about the shopmobile which is now on display at the at the center in 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 uh, in Stellarton at the the Museum of Industry the very same shopmobile that was built in West Pamlico in 1946 has survived and it is now on display and I saw it only a month ago I was in Stellarton and we stopped in to to see the shopmobile and that was like a vocational school on wheels but I was too young to go in the shopmobile I had to wait for the the real Yarmut Vocational School, as it was called back then. Okay. I have a story about, I'm an old Wilf Carter fan. I liked the, the old country music from the days when I grew up. And after he died, his son inherited his guitar, his grandson, I mean. And uh, somehow one of the daughter had imagined that, maybe not imagined, but had been told that the guitar had been stolen from an antique, from from a non-unlocked car. And that guitar was a Martin that that dated to 1935. Well, we prove my friend Fred Eisner from Lance, who who had a bookstore and has connection with music, found out that the guitar had been sold all along. So I have the story of Wilf Carter's guitar that dated to. 1935, and I still keep in touch with his youngest daughter, and we told her that the guitar had been sold and not stolen, as as had been reported. That's that's all really interesting, you know, and it's it's great that you know we have this record now with your books to to remember those stories. And let's talk about your your latest book here, "The Man in the Wrinkled Suit." It's your seventh novel, right? Right. So tell us a little it, bit about. It, it's yeah. not a novel. It's it's a short story. Right. Every story is, well, more or less true, you know, <laughs> as compared with a novel. Yes, this this book is is number seven. I didn't think I would do any more books, but but I still had some stories left, and I still had a few of my previous books left. And when Coles in Yarmouth bought the rest of my books, then that was an incentive to do one more book. And the man in the wrinkled suit was a man that I knew when I was working for the West Pamlico Credit Union. And when I had first met him, his his wrinkled suit was what I remembered. But the man was a genius, but you just don't judge a book by its cover. You don't judge a genius by his, his wrinkled suit. <laughs> and that's what my story is, is about. So does the book just focus on that story, or does it tell any others? No, it's 60 short stories. Oh, great. They're all different stories, like the shopmobile, like with Carter's guitar, like my grandfather's ships, and and old words. I have a story on old words that are no longer used. I have a story on how you can grow old peacefully and, and happily. I had 
done a book review on, on that once upon a time. That's cool. That's it's, it's really interesting. And uh, so, like we said, this is your seventh book. Right. So tell us a little bit more about some of your previous works and maybe a bit about your history as an author. Oh, yeah. Well, I in 1970 or so, I wrote a little booklet because I wanted to save my grandfather's stories. And, uh, and it was called The Two-Acre Farm, and I think every house in West Pomico, maybe in in every French French speaking part of Yarmouth County probably had one of those booklets. I sold them for two dollars. God knows how many I sold. And uh, and afterwards I, I did some writing in, in magazines and and uh, stuff like that, but not a, a whole pile, just the occasional story. Then in nineteen eighty nine I mentioned Wilf Carter when he was on his farewell tour and he was 86 years old I I wrote his story and this the Halifax paper bought it from me and 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 they published it and it took three pages to, in the, the thing called the Novice Caution which was part of the Halifax Herald in those days and I had noticed that the, the editor would mention Wilf Carter every once in a while so I assume she was a, a fan too, so she liked my stories. And then the next summer I was driving my old, I have a Model T and a Model A Ford. I was driving my old Model T in a parade and Fred Hatfield of the Vanguard was there, uh, toting cameras and so on. So I, I gave him a ride in my Model T and I told him I had written a story in the Halifax Herald called The Busker from Port Hilford. And Fred said, why don't you write stories for us in the vanguard? Well, I said, I didn't think you want any stories. Yeah, he said, we we don't have many Acadians in our writing, so uh, we certainly like to hear stories from Pumnico. Father Clarence Dontremont had done exactly 100 stories for the vanguard, and he said he wouldn't do any more. So, so I sort of took over when Father Clarence Father Clarence wrote about the real ancient history. I wrote about the things I saw around me, and Fred liked those stories, how to build a wooden boat, or stories about making hay, and and bootleggers, and the type of things that existed when I grew up. And, and I said to Fred, I have enough story to do, to do two stories. I can at least do two of them. So I did one on, on Wilf Carter, who was on his farewell tour, and I also did one on Adelbert Dayon, who was the bus driver who traveled from Pomnico to Yarmouth every day for 50 years, and he had the bus shop in West Pomnico. So I, I did his story as, as well. And then Fred said, if you have any more stories, well, all told, I sold 263 stories to the Vanguard wow. <laughs> after I had said I only had material for two. And and then uh, Fred suggested that maybe the Annapolis Valley people would like my stories, so I sold another 200 and something stories for them. And uh, the Atlantic Advocate did God knows how many of my stories as well. And, and other places, so 
And one thing I like is when I do a book or I go around and I talk about the book and I tell stories about about these things. So as a freelancer, I was certainly luckier than most that that lots of people have read my stuff. Well, it's important, you know, it's a, it's important to, to remember to to remember what life was like for those people in that time, you know, and it's it's good now that there's a there's a record of that that'll that'll continue on. Yes, that's what Fred Hatfield always used to say. For years after I'll be gone, my books will still be around and they'll know how people live in the 1930s or 40s or 50s or how their great-grandfathers lived. Or, You know, I was born in 1941, which makes me 81 years old. So I have a long memory that goes back. I remember the day the... World War II ended, and that story is in one of my books as well. The soldiers were returning home one by one, still dressed in their soldiers' uniform. I, I remember that. Well, that's really interesting. So where can people pick up your books? Where yes. can they find them? Yes, in the Armut Coles Bookstore has lots of my books, and I'll be doing a, a, a book signing on December the 3rd, on a Saturday at Coles. And the museum in, in Yarmouth has a few of my books. And in West Pomnico, we sell them at the Acadian Museum. And, and I always have some in my car. I sold quite a few straight from my car. And in Barrington, we, we sell them through the Barrington Bargain Center. They sold lots of my books there. And, and in Lockport, there's a lady named Dan, Danielle Williams, who sells my books, she goes to craft shows and so on, and and she does sell my book, and and in the near future I will drop off some books at the pharmacy in West Pamlico. So, um, if anyone wants to talk to me, I'll be on, on December third, like I said at at Cole's Bookstore in the Yarmouth Mall. Lots of good places to pick those up. So how about the feedback you've been getting from your books? What has that been like? Oh, yeah. I I hear from lots of people who tell me I, I had written a story once about going to confession, how strict the priest was, and and uh, the way he would pound the pulpit, and so Monsignor Thomas Leblanc, he, he would really have a temper and... <laughs> You know, if, if a girl was pregnant out of wedlock, he would make a rousing speech. Next Sunday, everybody knew it was coming. You, you could have embezzled or do any other sin if it didn't have anything to do with sex. It didn't bother him. So, And I wrote a story about that. And when my mother was still living then, when she saw that, oh... You're in trouble now. Everybody's going to criticize you. You made fun of a priest of the 1940s. Well, every old woman that I saw who remembered those days would tell me, my God, you told it exactly as it was. <laughs> it had to be told. And I'm sure people appreciate that. Yeah, you know, yeah. Getting that, that sort yeah. of real look at what it was really like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in those days... Uh, you know, the priest was very strict. He wasn't one of the boys like today the priest might go hunting with with people or go fishing with them. Well, in those days, the 
priest stuck right to the Glebe house or the church. You never saw him anywhere else. And people were scared stiff of him. So, yeah, that's another thing I wrote about, that how much control, you know, the priests had in those days. And uh, that has changed a whole lot since then. It has for sure. And wrapping up here, you say that this is your last book, but uh, of course I'll have to ask, is there any potential for any more stories in the future? Well, I don't have any more stories written that haven't been published or, or those that haven't been published are not worth publishing, maybe. I don't have any more stories. I'm 81 years old. I do a book about every three years, so I, I don't believe that I'll be doing any more books, but you never know. Somebody might come with a fistful of dollars and say, write my story, you know. Well, you know, there's, there's always more stories to tell. Yeah, there's always more stories to tell, but I, I like this one. It has a yellow cover. The picture there is of me in 1972. That picture is 50 years old. It was taken in Amsterdam. We were, I I was there with my brother and and a friend, with my brother and and our cousin, and we were ready to take the the canal there, the the boat tour in the canal. And there was a little machine there you would put 25 cents or whatever the equivalent of that was in, in Holland money. And I put that, and that picture came out. I thought it was very good, so I put it on the cover of my books. No, it looks great. It's it's very great. Well, Laurent, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us today, for sharing, you know, your history as a storyteller, yeah. telling us about some of your novels and some about something about the great stories of this area. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I'm much obliged. And that's our program for today. Thanks for listening. For story suggestions or to submit feedback, email news.cjls at radioabl.ca or call our newsline at 902-749-1919. To listen to archived versions of our program, visit us online at cjls.com and click on The Weekender. The Weekender is a production of the Y95 Newsroom and is brought to you by Eris Yarmouth, your one-stop healthy home center.